Well, thank you again for your attention and for the, uh, for the conversations uh, during the break. They were very encouraging. Our next talk is on post-millennials or Generation Y and the questions they will not ask. There was an article cited by uh, Rebecca Reynolds on a Facebook posting by a young woman and her, uh, she's probably 19 or 20, that her family used to be in our church. They moved for her father's job. And so I knew her for years as a girl and then as a teen and then into her, uh, into the stage of being a young woman. She cites this. A student knocked on my door. Mrs. Reynolds, do you have a minute to talk? I could tell she was upset, so I pulled up a chair and closed the classroom door to give her space to vent. <coughs> Ever since I can remember, people have been telling me that the Christian faith is under attack. They warned me about humanist, relativist, evolutionist, globalist, and communist, universalist, and liberals. They prepared me for every single argument, but they didn't prepare me for my disappointment in the church. I wanted heroes, she said, but I don't admire most of the Christian adults I know. On social media, they forward links to these weird sites, stuff that almost, nev almost never are legit. If you take time to actually look up the facts, if you try to talk to them in person about what's going on in the world, they don't listen to you. Even if you show them valid research, they interrupt you before you can explain it, calling everything they don't like fake news, even if it's undeniably true. They are frantic, angry, scared. Truth doesn't matter to them, it just doesn't. No matter what politicians in their political party have done, they overlook it. All my life they've told me to be moral, and that's been hard, but I've done it. I haven't slept around, but it doesn't matter that I've held on. I see now that purity means nothing to them. It's just something they tell kids to keep them from getting pregnant. She was nearly in tears. What else, I asked, wanting to hear it all out before I said anything. Then came the part that really got me. You know, she said, I've thought about this a lot. I would be willing to die for my faith, at least I think I would be. If God is real, he is worth dying for. But watching adults who have lived 20 or 30 years longer than I have act like they are acting right now makes me wonder if this whole Christianity thing is real at all. If older Christians are showing me where this faith is going, I don't want to go with them. I don't want to be on that team. My heart sank when I heard these words. The faith of this young woman was not being attacked by non-Christians, but by immaturity and disobedience in the church of Jesus Christ. I have heard for years Christian leaders blame the exodus of Americans' youth on the temptations of the world. But in this student's sharp cry of pain, I saw a different story. Now, that is posted by a young woman who was in my church. This is what she comments on after she posted. So relatable. I get so frustrated when adults talk about being very disappointed in my where my generation is going. So many adults in my life that I held as high role models have failed in such extreme ways that I felt like walking away from the church body completely. Not God, but people who call themselves His children. Give us young people a safe place to ask questions and grow where we won't be judged and talked down to and see how big a difference it makes. You know how Facebook works, right? You post something like this, you comment on it, and other people comment on it as well. Here's some other comments, and by the way, this is also from a young woman whose family once belonged to our church. I couldn't agree with this more. Our Christian younger generation faces so much judgment and criticism for mistakes or certain questions, choices that are asked or made. It's as if the younger generation isn't allowed to make mistakes because we were raised better and should know better. But the generation before us gets away with anything because of God's never-ending grace and forgiveness. So therefore, no judgment are looking down upon them. Yet they're the exact people who talk against all the same mistakes they make. I just feel that many, many, many Christians are so hypocritical and I truly have lost respect for so many church people because of it. Now I don't look at any other person or someone to mirror because the only one who is worth being like is only Jesus himself. He is the only one I care about offending, not a single other person and their personal beliefs and interpretations of the scripture. But I agree. There should be more openness and safety for the younger generation to be able to be free and real about the struggles we face and to be able to receive advice and encouragement 
without the judgment of the just as sinful and perfect older generation. Here are two more. I knew these people as well. Even more critical is the one thing she mentioned, being willing, she hopes, to die for her God, but afraid to live for him. I went through the same process of looking for adult role models that didn't treat my innocence like a crime, naivete as a fault, questions as foolishness, or joy as ignorance. I slowly came to feel that it would be far better to die early than live long. Not that all Christian adults I know behaved like this, but enough did that I wondered, what are the odds of living a life of joy? How come some adults are content and others so bitter, even the ones who laugh the most? I never really found an answer, and I still struggle with finding joy in my life and my future. Our generation is in serious trouble, not just because we have had bad, have had bad worldly examples, but also because we have had so few truly good examples among the faithful. We don't need someone perfect. Jesus already is. We need adults, imperfect humans like us, who've lived longer but are willing to share and discuss and set an example. In the last, I can relate. I too have been so sick and hurt greatly by the hypocrisy that I see in the church, especially in the leadership of the church. At times I have almost walked away from the faith because of what I saw in the church. I'm not saying that it was all the church's fault, but it did have its place, and it made me sick and ashamed to see how other Christians treated other fellow believers. We have to remember to not grow bitter Learn from their mistakes and pray to God that we don't repeat them. Honest. I was also one who posted on that thread. That's what it's called, isn't it? A thread. And I said, thank you. And for anything that I've been responsible for, I apologize. And I want you to know that I'm listening. And I want to do better myself. These voices need to be heard. There was a, um, Donald Miller wrote his book, Blue Like Jazz. Anybody ever pick that up? He went to an incredibly liberal university, private university. And in that whole school body, there were only three other Christians. And so they tended to hang out together, and they were given a name by the, the you know, this was, this was a very decadent, very, very, uh, very, very liberal college. And they were given some kind of nickname or something like that. And once a year, this college put on um, it was some kind of night. It was a night of debauchery and decadence that, that wonderfully so most of us can't even imagine. It was so bad that the faculty and everyone that was uh, on staff would excuse themselves that night. They would not be part of it. And what happened on the campus, on the campus grounds, and, and all that went on would, uh, would, would, would shame uh, the pagans. I mean, they were just all out whatever. And so these four Christians, as Donald Miller explains, wanted to do something that night as a stand for Christ, as a witness to these people. And so they were, they were strategizing, and they came up with, one of them said, oh, here's what we'll do. Let's, let's build a confessional, <laughs> Right? Let's build a confessional. And one of the other guys said, a confessional? Are you kidding me? None of these people are going to go into the confessional. They're not going to see the confessional. They're not going to come in and confess their sins. And he said, no, 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 no. We're going to build a confessional, and we are going to confess our sins to them. So they're going to be the priest. And when the, when the pagan comes into the confessional, we're going to say, we're Christians, and we, but, and we say that we love people, but we really don't. We say that we, we need each other, and we're connected to each other, but we're really not. We say that we, we want to live a pure life, but actually, that's not, our, that's not a motivation in our life. Isn't that, isn't that great? 
And they did. And they confessed the sins, all the sins they knew that, the, that Christians in the church uh, commit. It wasn't, you know, apologizing for the Crusades. It was apologizing for their own lack of love for one another and their lack of shining like they should and their lack of brotherly love and their lack of enjoying living for God. So what kind of questions would be confessed by our youth? They would ask questions like this. They're not asking them, but they would ask these questions. Why am I not happy as a Christian? Why don't I love God? Why do I waste my time? Why am I so weak in my faith? Why don't I have confidence? Where are the manifestations of the kingdom? I've heard all my life that the light shines in the darkness, but why isn't the light shining? Why doesn't the word mean more to me? Why is it that I read the Bible and I don't get anything out of it? Where are the opportunities for me to serve in the church? What is my place? Why, does, why is the emphasis always on my parents in the preaching and the teaching? And it could go on and on and on. And I've actually had some of these articulated in my presence. Not by the kids that are walking out the door and aren't going to be you know, interested anymore in the church. It's by the best, by the very best that we have. I uh, had a meeting with all the young men in our church at my house, and then I had another meeting with all the young women in our church, in our house. And uh, they were there, and I love every one of these children. But they hate being called children, because they're not children. I have to ask them. I, I met with another group in another church. They invited me, a youth group of young people that have organized themselves into political action and social action, and they asked me to come and speak, and I talked to them. I said, how do you like being called children? <laughs> uh, they don't like it. Public PSA here, they don't like it. <laughs> if you could convert your, your, uh, your vocabulary to include, every now and then, young adults. They're fine with that. You guys fine with that, young adults? You like young adults? All you young adults? Or do you want to be called kids? I could just call you kids. <laughs> I said to them, you know, I love you very much, and I'm your pastor, and I want you to thrive, flourish. I want you to be completely fulfilled in your life. And for most of them, it's the first time the pastor talked to them. A pastor had ever talked to them. And I found out through this and talking to others that I've had appointments with and gotten coffee and talked with, that uh, they say, you know what? When you meet with us, when you, when you emailed us and said, I'd like to meet with you, that meant a lot to us. It, could, it, it wouldn't even have to be me. It could be um, a man in the church that wanted to meet with a young man or several young men or a, a woman in the church meeting with some young women. Because we're raising these kids to be adults. And some of them at 15 are there. And some of them at 16 are there. I'm talking about the young women right now. They're there. And the, and the boys are there when they're about 28. <laughs> but it means so much for someone to recognize that they are the next generation and we are, they're invisible. They're still kids. Now, granted, you know, this whole thing that people say when you first have children, oh, it doesn't last long. You, those children, they're going to grow up fast. And you go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm changing diapers. I'm not getting any sleep, you know. I'm having to, you know, wait for them to go to bed before I can eat my dinner. Uh, I've got to bathe these kids and find clothes for them. And, uh, well, at least it's all my wife saying. I just show up. But, you know, <laughs> you don't think, but then you know what? 
you, I just, I realize this too, that everything you guys told me is true. You turn around and they're, they're marrying. They're leaving home for college. They're having babies. It happens overnight. And so for you young adults, you need to realize that if you're 15 or 18 or 20, Yesterday you were eight. And your advancement into adulthood happened overnight for us, didn't it? It just happened. We've been calling you our kids for 14 years, 15 years. So give us a break, okay? <laughs> Give us some slack, right? So these young people meet in my living room, my dining room, and we're talking. And I say, I love you. You're, you are the best. I wouldn't want to be in anyone else's company, any other young adult group's company. But I don't think you're very spiritual. And these are children that I baptized when they were babies. But I don't think you're very spiritual. Their families are faithful. A lot of them do family worship, often, if not every night. They're in one of the best churches in the world. They've got one of the best pastors in the world. <laughs> but they're not very spiritual. Now, who am I going to blame for that? I mean, take the capital of what I've already talked about, the limited amount of material I gave you in our first talk, and bring that forward to this conversation. How is it that these young people are being moral, are, 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 are you know, being faithful in church, are willing to help, but they really, their heads and their hearts are more where these Facebook postings are. Because they're the next generation, and in our sight, they're not there. They're invisible. At Gen Next Camp, or Next Gen, I, it's Gen Next, isn't it? I just keep, I, I will, I'll do that all the time, reverse things. Uh, I said last year to the group that was there, I'm concerned that you feel like when you go to church that you are going to your parents' church. And that when you go to Bible study, you're going to your parents' Bible study. Because when the pastor is preaching, who are you getting the feeling that he's preaching to? My parents. That's not intentional, but, you know, it can be worded and formed that way, and the eye contact, you know, et cetera. And then when you go to a Bible study, if there's a question asked, who's generally going to ask that question? Who's going to be interacting with the teacher or the pastor? It's usually going to be the dad. In our circles, mostly the dad. Sometimes the mom. Rarely, and again, there are glorious exceptions, but rarely the young adult. How do we solve this? Now, in the postings, which are, is, is representative of so many, uh, the vast percentage of, of young people, the Facebook postings represent that. How is it that we, as the grown-ups, have not given them more inspiration, more desire. How is it that we are allowing our lives to just simply unfold without living a deliberate, I'm going to follow Jesus kind of life before them, in front of them? Or worse, don't apply the scripture, don't love the Lord like we say and confess that we do in our songs and in our prayers and our liturgies, 
and just simply let our lives unravel in front of them. We have to be more focused about how we are living our lives. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter refers to the common faith that the believers have with him in his letter, the very first four verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. And then he moves into saying to them, you need to give all diligence to add to your faith. Not work for your faith, but to add to your faith. And then he begins to say, virtue. Add to your faith virtue, or another word is excellence. So you have the Christian faith, and everyone in here that has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who has trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, you are, you have that faith. Okay? But do you have excellence? Answer? No. You're the same toad head that got saved. Unless, unless you have added to your faith virtue, excellence. You see, the church is full of members, people who have joined the church. To join the church, you have to believe in Christ and have been baptized. And then, based on the church you belong to, you may have to stand before the church and take uh, vows of membership. You might have to go through a class and then take vows of membership, and now, you're, um, now you are a member of the church, right? But what is, how does the Bible use the term member? The Bible uses the term member is that the church is a body and it's made up of what every member contributes. And then when you see what every member is supposed to contribute, like their spiritual gifts, their giving, their, their, um, um, their, the one another's of scripture, edifying one another, correcting one another, uh, building each other up, bearing one another's burdens, all these things, if they begin to do that, then you've got something vibrant and alive. But if you just have members in the sense of what it takes to join a church and have your name on the roll, then, that's, a, then that is, that's not taking the biblical freight into that. What we have to do, what you and I have to determine to do, is we have to determine to not be just members. Not the biblical sense, but how we're thinking about it. But we need to move into the area of being disciples. Where we are adding to our faith. Add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge, to knowledge uh, patience, to patience uh, something else, and to that something else, brotherly love, and finally love. You add these things. It's an exercise. It is a discipline. It is a desire. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you want to be this person. We are falling incredibly behind in our normal Christian life with one another as members of the church. But we're going to stay true. We're going to stay on course. We're the pioneers of the Christian school. We're the pioneers of the new liturgy that's old. We are the pioneers of the CREC. We're the pioneers of the family-integrated homeschooling churches. We're the pioneers of the bringing the psalms back to music and singing them. We're going to stay true because that's kind of our motivation the recovery of these things. But our children are not the pioneers. And our children, the ones that don't walk away or walk half away, are going to imitate the quality of our Christian life and maybe not imitate it that well. And if the quality of our individual Christian life is low 
then theirs is probably going to be a little lower. Now, tomorrow is Sunday. We worship at 9.30. So that means probably most of you have to leave home at 9. I see a lot of little kids. You have to get all these little kids dressed, you know. Do yourself a favor tonight or today when you get home. Go ahead and find all the shoes. <laughs> all right? That's a biggie. Put them by the door. You know right where they are. You're not going to, most of you are not going to feel like getting up and coming to church in the morning. I'm preaching tomorrow, and I know right now I'm not going to feel like it. <laughs> Do you think your young adults who are about to leave your home and leave your church for other things, if they've got an option, are they going to go to church when they're away? Oh, they will, but will they go all the time? Will they see how important it is? Well, they see that is the place where I am encouraged, where I am built up, where I belong more than, I mean, I belong in my family and I belong in the church. And now I'm not with my family. I've got to. I want to. I will. I won't even give it a second guess. This is the kind of stuff we're facing right now. We have moved into Canaan. We have fought we, have now, we are now dwelling in the land, and we are, I'm afraid, close to raising a generation that, of course, know everything about Egypt. They, all, they know about the Passover. Of course they do. They were raised. They were, the boys were circumcised. They're not going to forget that. That's already a mark on their body. It's not like they're not going to know about God, but... The question is, will they know God? Will they know him in such a dynamic, genuine way due to our showing it to them that will keep them in the church, that will keep them loving Christ? I mean, it's one thing to come, you know, to leave a home church or a liberal church or a church that didn't value uh, children in the worship service or, um, or didn't have communion every Sunday. It's one thing as an adult to leave that, to actually move across the country and re-establish yourselves to be in a good church or right church. That's, that's, that's huge. That's great. It's one thing to do, for you to do that. It's another thing for our children to, to not value that because there hasn't been much left, because they've grown up with your frustrations with a Christian school or with homeschooling or you talking about other people in the church in not a, not a very loving way. Or you not trying to resolve issues or you not getting over your fears of confrontation, of, of you not spontaneously blessing someone else if you know they haven't caught you praying they haven't caught you reading your bible they haven't caught you on your knees they haven't you haven't ever brought anyone home that was homeless and had them sit at your table and eat your food we talk and talk and talk and talk about the kingdom and manifestations in the kingdom but we they don't see the kingdom we don't see them and they don't see the kingdom From what I've been hearing and what I've been reading, they are tired of the talk without some kind of creative manifestation, without some kind of building something. Yeah, maybe they've gone on a mission trip for a week or two weeks. And those are great, by the way. Tourism for Jesus, getting your kids to another country and letting them see Christians in another country, totally worth it. Totally. But they have never put their hand, most of them, to anything. Because you and I haven't put our hand to anything that they've seen 
We have to change this. We have to turn this around. We have to read the scriptures, hear the scriptures, see what the scriptures say, and then we need to go, and we go and do it. To follow Jesus doesn't mean that you're just in his wake. It means that you are behind him, or beside him, and you're waiting for him to turn around and talk to you. And when he turns around and talks to you, and he says, go and do this, you go and do this. He says, stop doing that, you stop doing that. He says, you need to think this way and speak this way and you need to relate this way. And you go, okay, that's what it means. Or we can just remain members of the church and not disciples and we're going to lose our next generation. And the generation after that is going to be even more severely compromised. Now, I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to the creme lit of creme. We have accomplished a lot. You have accomplished a lot. All the good that we're doing, we're not doing away with any of that. We're keeping all of it. But what we're talking about is the things that have flown under the radar, the things that we have not noticed until now. And you and I need to get in the confession booth. Not to hear our children's confession, but for them to hear ours. The great thing about God's grace and mercy and his, his standing invitation to bless us is that he can and does give us beauty for ashes. He does make up for the years that the locust has eaten. And so we need to begin to talk. I've been listening to a lot of pop music over the last few years. It hasn't affected me at all. <laughs> it's interesting, uh, uh, when I take our van and I'm by myself, I can flip from the popular pop music station to the classic rock station. You know, there's two buttons. I'm changing worlds like that, you know? So, but I, I'm, I'm really enjoying listening to the music that the younger generation is listening to. I click over to the rock and roll, the classic rock and roll, and it's all about decadence. I mean, there's a few good ones, really good ones. But, but you know, the, the pop ones, and maybe you should do this. Just do, just, you know, do a little experimentation, a little, little investigation. The pop music, for the most part, is all about looking for meaning. It's all about, I want to belong. It's all about fear. It's all about uncertainty. It's all about wanting purpose and not being able to find it. It's all, almost all of it, is incredibly honest. It's a cry. Now, you know why bands don't make it after their first debut album. You know that, don't you? They've been living in their car They've been singing wherever they can set up with busted equipment, you know. They've, they're, 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 uh, they're eating uh, the cheapest foods. And so they've got all this angst and all this, the, the, all this uh, poverty and all this trying to make it. And then their album breaks and they become millionaires. And that's why they don't have anything to say after that <laughs> quite often, right? But here they are in their, in their debut songs and all, they're pouring out their hearts and they're hoping that someone, and this, we're talking about the postmodern culture. We're talking about, about our culture going to hell in a handbasket and here are the poets of the age putting their words to music and they're looking for meaning. And our 
children in the church are identifying with their words. I'm afraid more than the word of God. And more than they're they're identifying with the lives of these musicians than they are with the lives of the people in the church. And we could change that. We could change that if we began to be honest and transparent and we got back into the word and we renewed our desire and our devotion to the Lord. Here's here's one of my favorites. Judah and the lion. Anybody? Suit and jacket. Anybody? I ain't trading my youth for no suit and jacket. I ain't giving my freedom for your money and status. So don't say I'm getting older, because I'll say it when I do. Because everybody I know, everybody I know is growing old, is growing old too quickly, and I don't want to go. No, how am I supposed to slow it down so I can figure out who I am. And I ain't trading my dreams for no 401k. I ain't giving this fire for a cold, cold heart. So don't say I'm getting colder, because I'll say it when I do. Because everybody I know, everybody I know is growing old. Is growing old too quickly, and I don't want to go. No, how am I supposed to slow it down so I can figure out who I am? Some of us are surviving, some of us are roaming, some of us are just hoping the world will move more slowly and some of us alive. We're all going to die one day. Yes, some of us are surviving, some of us are roaming, some of us just hoping the world will move more slowly and some of us alive, we're all going to die one day. And as this fellow sings this song, it becomes more of a pine, it it becomes less of a pining and moves to, musically, moves to an anthem type of sound. Where it builds so much to the point, and it's actually crafted beautifully and emotionally. It builds to a point where at the end of the, wor- of the, fra- of the last line, he is screaming, yes, some of us surviving, some of us just roaming, some of us just hoping the world will move more slowly, some of us alive, because all are going to die one day. We're all going to die one day because everybody I know, everybody I know is growing old, is growing old too quickly. I don't want to go. Now, how am I going to slow it down so I can figure out who I am. See, I'm afraid that this uncertainty and this disillusionment and this lack of purpose, if you put our, our generation, our next generation, on a continuum, that these young adults are closer to this sentiment than they are to the certainty and the confidence and the joy that is promised in the Christian life. They need to see it real. Their hearts and their souls demand reality, and so do ours, but we have become used to status quo and complacency. And just just not giving it too much more effort. We haven't spurred each other on to good works. We have not provoked one another to godliness. We have not been there to shoulder the pain of others. We, have, we only, uh, as Jesus said, if you love those who love you back, what reward have you? Even the publicans do the same thing. I mean, one start would be to pick out the person or the family that irritates you the most and have them over for dinner. And so if any of you get an invitation that you haven't normally gotten. (laughs) You see, we could be the people in our culture that are so calm and so confident And so full of satisfaction and joy that people wonder about us. 
we could transmit this to our young adults and on down to these children that are sitting with us that will be young adults <coughs> tomorrow, right? They grow up so fast. They could be in the culture when they get a job, when they're seen at the grocery store, at the park, at the farmer's market, in some of the things that, um, in the sports or whatever else they do, where they interact with other people, they would stand out as extraordinary. Not because they are, but because Jesus is. And because they love Jesus and they're so into him and so into the kingdom and building the kingdom and doing things for the kingdom, they've had their hands there and their families and the people that they belong to and that their families belong to are so integrated in their desire to walk with Jesus and live out the story. I mean, that's what they're singing for. That's what they're pining for. That's what the people of the world need. In a postmodern world where we're saying everything, where everyone's saying there is no truth and everything is relative, they're looking for it. And we have it under a basket. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there when the Queen of Sheba showed up? <laughs> right? And there's Solomon and she is witnessing the liturgy of their lives. And of course, from all, uh, all accounts, Solomon, he, he was styling. I mean, he, he knew how to put on a show. I mean, overlaying everything with gold. And they built this and they overlaid it with gold. And they built this and they overlaid it with gold. And then they made cupcakes and they overlaid them with gold. <laughs> She was, the scripture tells us, beside herself. Not because of any particular show, but because of the show that was continuing and going on. And it wasn't the trappings of wealth that she mentioned. As much as she mentioned the joy and satisfaction and fulfillment that she saw in his servants, right? That's the kingdom. Why aren't we there? Why don't we move to that point? Why don't we get there? Why don't we do everything we can? Why don't we just, you know, just, all right, we got to keep everything going that's going, but we have got to start looking at that. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm asking you to do. That's why, that's why I came. That's why I'm going before the, our presbytery and talking about these things. And I'm not going to stop talking. And, I, and this is a conversation. It's just the beginning. You are, on the, you are at the beginning. You're at ground zero, as it were, of this conversation that needs to continue. John, the beloved, writing in his first epistle, he says, <clears throat> I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. The wicked one in the Gospels, and John was there, right? Was characterized as the thief and the robber and the taker of life. The young men that John is writing to, the young men in the church that he's writing to, are full of the word of God and, have, and are strong, that's their strength, and have overcome the thief and the robber and the taker of life. You know, you don't have to have everything stolen to be a uh, victim of a robber. You don't have to have your entire life taken to be a victim of a taker of life. But John gives us hope that it is possible that our young generation, 
Because he writes to the fathers, too, in the text. And he writes to the children, too, in the text. It's possible that we can give to our children a faith that is this overcoming when it comes to the world. That they have not been robbed. That they have not had their life, any part of their life, taken away. That they are exhibiting this this, uh, work of grace in their lives. This is what they can have. In Proverbs, chapters 1 through 30, listen, listen well, young women. In Proverbs 1 through 30, the father is trying to get the son's attention. It took 30 chapters. But Proverbs 1 through 30 is, is talking to this young man about life under God's reign and, and how he can live. And it, it builds to his being wise and discerning about business and about, about uh, f- the kind of friends he will have and the kind of people he will trust and the, and the things he will stand for and the things he will not stand for, the things that he will actually stand against, how he should speak, how he should use his energy his wealth, his gifting, it's all through Proverbs 1 through 30. This is based on a young man who first and foremost, it's only going to happen if this young man first and foremost fears the Lord. That he's in so much awe and so much love of the Lord that this is going to be the end result of his life. That This is the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of his entire Christian life is if he really is grateful to, him, to God for what God has done and his desire and devotion is to love the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the only way this is going to unfold. And then in Proverbs chapter 31, we have the words of a woman to a son, a mother to a son. And it's King Lamel's mom's talking now. And she says, and again, she's trying to get the kid's attention. What, my son, and what the son of my womb, and what the son of my vows? Has your mom ever said that to you? It's like, mom, but she has said, she, your mom does go on a rant, like, you know, she could simply ask you, why haven't you cleaned up your room? But she asks you, why haven't you cleaned up your room? And then she adds and adds and adds to it. And you're ready to answer the first part of that question. Here, what, my son, and what the son of my womb, what the son of my vows? And then she talks about, what it means, what, what's important for kings and what's important for marriage. She talks about ruling and about women. And in like only five verses, she talks about kings. And then the rest of Proverbs 31 is the thing that you ladies don't like to hear. This perfect woman. This woman who gets everything done. Who probably is dressing, you know, she's probably dressed to the nines and she's got makeup on and she's getting all this done. But the woman that's being described is not, she doesn't exist. Relief, huh? She doesn't exist in the sense that the mom, Lamel's mom, is not saying, find this woman, this married woman who has children and a husband, kill the husband, (laughs) marry her, and then you're set. Because the description is a married woman, right? Are we all on the same page? Proverbs 31? It is a married woman that's being described. But this woman who is doing all this great stuff is described as a woman who fears the Lord. The point of her being able to do all this and to live this way, which is beautiful and orderly and, and compassionate and relational and just it's and charitable, it's just fantastic. This is not going to happen, my son, unless you find a woman who fears the Lord. And when she fears the Lord, she's grateful for all that God has done for her. And she wants to love the Lord with all her heart and soul and mind and strength. You marry this woman, this is what it's going to be like. Our devotion and desire to follow the Lord 
leads to all the good things that we're talking about here. It leads to fulfillment. It leads to contentment. It leads to purpose. It leads to meaning. It leads to joy. And by the time you get to the last verses of Proverbs, in Proverbs 31, we find that it leads to love. Leads to the continuation of our ethnic group, which is God's people. Because a God-fearing man meets a God-fearing woman, and they marry, and what happens after that? They break covenant. No, they, they, uh, they come together, and what do they do? Well, natural course of things, they have children. And then they repeat. We are supposed to be a people like no other, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests unto our God. It's time for us to do the diagnostics on ourselves individually and on our marriages and on our families and on our churches and say, we've got a lot of good things going on here. We're going to keep all of those things. But we need to get to the point where these kinds of questions are answered for our youth, are answered for ourselves. And once they are, and they're right there in the scripture, then we live out this answer and the world notices so that the anthem that people like Judah and the lion write next is not one of despondency. It's one of joy and adoration and gladness in the presence of God because they have found the answer because the answer is on grand display like a city that's set on a hill who at night its light cannot be hidden. That's our normal. That is supposed to be our average. And I want us to stop being below average in this and get to the point where we need to be. Are you with me? Let's pray. Lord, help us indeed to find our place with you, to take these things to heart. This is just the beginning. There's so much to say and so much to work out and so much to do. Lord, give us the grace and keep us on course. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.